friends and enemies. Shield your eyes from the burning sun. Carry the soil of your homeland in a great wooden box and wonder where your new intolerance for garlic bread came from. Because it's time to talk dull to me. <laughs> Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I am Omen Sade. And I am Nick McGill. We are Feckless Momes. And this, believe it or not, is Talk Tell to Me. A vampiric night journey through the misty graveyard of prog rock band Jethro Tull. Every album a virgin, every song a drop of delicious blood as we work our way decade through decade through the immortal genius that is Ian Anderson. Hopefully, by the end of this adventure, you won't be nearly as pale and gaunt and emaciated as Omen and I will be, <laughs> but we will live vicariously through you and your blood. That's right. So, Nick, what are we raising from the grave to talk tall about today? This is pretty exciting. This is our halfway point through a passion play. Hey. It is the the silly silly break in kind of intense story we have, a bit of an interlude. An entreact, if you will. I I would consider it as that, yeah. And it is the the story of the hare who lost his spectacles. However, before we dive into that, yes. I have no housekeeping or anything to handle. Mary is off today. Marley is off today. Thank goodness. But thank, thank goodness. But it is time, I think, as is tradition at this point, that we discuss the Rolling Stones review for this album. That's right. Now, Nick, there's a reason why we don't do the Rolling Stones review at the top of the album. And that reason is because... We forget to, but also it's <laughs> it's also because we really want to we want to talk about the album without having our opinion super influenced by the opinion of Rolling Stone. I feel like when I hear the Rolling Stone reviews, I get more defensive than influenced. I I mm -hmm. affected I hope I, perhaps I, is a word we could I, use. Yeah, I think it would be. I mean, I hope. I hope it will be less this time. I, I hope I will be less defensive and offended. But I don't know. With the way Passion Play was received and, and the way it is, it, it, it might not be a terribly good review. But I, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Well, Nick, I have some good news for you off the bat. And it's not Ben Gerson. It is not Ben Gerson. Oh, mercy. Okay, great. We're already <laughs> off to a better start. Okay. So, here is the Rolling Stones review written or released at uh, on August 30th, 1973 at our standard Rolling Stone release time of 4 a.m. Eastern 4 Standard. Okay. A Passion Play, review by Stephen Holden. Good old Stevie Holds. A Passion Play is the artsiest artifact yet to issue from the maddeningly eccentric mind of Ian Anderson. Fact. Conceived for live performance as much as for disc, 
Its ultimate presentation incorporates a short film, written, directed, and edited by Anderson, in addition to the madcap hysteria of the stage show. Having not seen the play, I can only comment on the disc, which is a pop potpourri of Paradise Lost and Winnie the Pooh, among other literary resources, <laughs> not to mention a vast array of musical ideas derivative of influences as far-flung as Purcell, flamenco, and modern jazz. Okay, yep. Viewed as a recorded oratorio, or a prolonged single, or as any in-between hybrid, a passion play strangles under the tonnage of its pretensions, a jumble of archaic, childishly precocious gestures that are intellectually and emotionally faithless to any idea other than their own esoteric non-logic. I don't disagree so far. <laughs> I... I, I think I think that's a bit much. Like Thick as a Brick, the aesthetic of a passion play is desperate zaniness, but here it is carried to even further extremes. The scenario roughly parallels the Passion of Christ. The par sort of the parallel is not made half as clear in the play's gibberish, <laughs> pun laden verses and double entendres parentheses, e.g. the playing back and forth between B and B, in f and in phrases like man slash son of man, end parentheses, as in the album's cutesy playbill mm. within record jacket pursued in relation to the presumptuous title. And if you were confused by that sentence structure, it's because you don't have a degree in engineering. <laughs> If one undertakes the thankless task of unraveling the text, as it coincides with the playbill, a sequence of events takes the following vague outline. Ronnie Pilgrim... I just want to point out, I want to point out that is what we are doing. It's literally the thankless task that we are That's right. embarking on. Thank you, Nick. No, I think we get more thanks than than Stephen Holden, for sure. That's at probably this true, yeah. yeah. Ronnie Pilgrim, a supercilious atheist describes his own funeral then goes through purgatory part of which is a movie rerun of his life he is teased by two by the saints who say or are we here for the glory for the story of the gory satisfaction of telling you how absolutely awful you really are and then both narrates and is an imaginative participant in a shaggy dog fable recited to film called the story of the hare who lost his spectacles which accompanied by the album's most ponderous incidental music, is meant to sum up the <laughs> mundanely single vision of his whole life. There ensues a descent into hell, a business office, according to the program, in which Anderson takes, among other roles, that of Satan, followed by a resurrection into the drawing room of a magus per day. I'll leave it for the devout tall freak to argue the details. Hey, that's us. The myriad subtleties, contradictions, and paradoxes of this banal put-down, since, to my mind, neither the text nor the music seems to justify further analysis. Except for the addition of the Hair Spectacles narration, the structure of the Passion Play is as free-form as that of Thick as a Brick. In tone, it is the ultimate exaggeration of self-indulgent English whimsy, an intellectual tease in inflated with portent, but devoid of wonder in its cumulative expression mean and trivial. Final paragraph. The only positive aspect of the album is the performance of the music itself. The Jethro Tull Band, same alignment as in Brick, 
is truly virtuosic in the manner of a polished chamber ensemble. The high points are those interludes that feature Anderson's extraordinary flute playing, some of it seemingly multi-tracked, two short pastoral sections that precede and follow the abominable Pooh Perplex are especially lovely. The overall impact of this music, however, is very slight. Not a single leitmotif sticks in the mind. What blues figurations there are are constipated and redundant. As a whole, the score is far less substantial than Thick as a Brick, itself a suffocatingly fey concoction. Finally, one leaves a passion play with the feeling of having been subjected to 45 minutes of vapid twittering and futzing about, all play and no passion, expensive, tedious nonsense. Who Nick? It's very scathing. You know but what? It's though? not. It's not without. Not without a kernel of truth, though. I think that this review is far less scathing than it would have been had it been written by Ben Gerson. And yeah, and, and actually, agreed. I have a, I have, a, I have a theory. Go on. My theory is that Ben Gerson on the Jethro Tull beat was given the Passion Play album to listen to, sat down, turned it on, spontaneously combusted, leaving a charred hole where his flat had been and they had to replace him with someone who was a little bit more moderate I, I think you're right I think Critique Oblique was written for Ben Gerson right yeah the album is actually this is a, a little known fact just a a Ben Gerson review played backwards <laughs> yeah if you play it backwards at a different speed uh, you'll just hear Ben Gerson screaming in agony as he lights a flame. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> yeah. Just a real quick, he referred to, I think, specifically the story of the hare who lost his spectacles as a shaggy dog fable. Yeah, that's right. A shaggy dog fable is a specific term for a story, a shaggy dog story. It's an extremely long-winded anecdote characterized by extensive narration of typically irrelevant incidents and terminated by an anticlimax. Yeah, exactly. Which explains the, the hare who lost his spectacles to a T. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just a little bit more. They play upon the audience's preconceptions of joke telling. The audience listens to the story with certain expectations, which are either simply not met or met in some entirely unexpected manner. A lengthy shaggy dog story derives its humor from the fact that the joke teller held the attention of the listeners for a long time. Such jokes can take five minutes or more to tell for no reason at all, as the end resolution is essentially meaningless. It's a lot like the aristocrats, if you know the, the aristocrats joke or, or have seen that documentary. Absolutely. Yeah. And in a way, I think that calling the hare who lost his spectacles a shaggy dog story is kind of a, a microcosmic critique of the album itself. You could you could say yes. that. Right. That the entire album is a shaggy dog story. Yeah. The, the story of the hare who lost his spectacles is a condensed, concentrated version of the album as a whole. Yes. And, and and certainly the critique of it is a critique that could be applied to the album mm -hmm. as a whole. Right. 
And just one one last thing before we dive into the song itself. You can actually go to YouTube and see the video that they played during this portion of the concert, of that live concert. There were three portions yes. of video. The the first acts one and two, that first portion that we, we've already covered the last two weeks. This one, the story of the hare who lost his spectacles, and then there's a third that's that's three and four, acts three and four. This one is bananas. It's trippy. It's absurd. It's everything that you would expect based on just listening to the song itself. I'll actually, I'll put the link in, in the show notes if you want to go watch it. It's it's just over seven minutes. I would say it's worth watching. I, I definitely think it's worth watching, especially if you like sort of strange hybrids between a child's dress-up fantasy and a druidic sex ritual. Yeah, it's a, it's like a it's like a really twisted children's show. It's like something on Adult Swim where they're like it's the guise of a children's sh- show, but it's really like twisted and adult and and yeah. and grotesque and horrifying. And and I would say it's just it's worth just as much a watch as the Sweet Dream music video was oh from a year ago. Perhaps more palatable. <laughs> I would say so, yeah. Certainly higher budget. No higher brow, though. It's lower brow, I would yes. say. <laughs> higher budget, lower brow. Speaking of budgets and brows, Nick, shall we lower our brows, raise our budgets, and dive into our main attraction for the day, which is the hair who lost his spectacles? Yes, absolutely. The the track itself, it is about, it's just over, it's five and a half minutes. Written and performed by Jeffrey Hammond Hammond. Hammond? The spoken part, the the words, yes. Correct, yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's hair right into that. Can hair be, hair can be used as a verb, right? You can hair. Like, sure. It means run away, I yeah, think. Yeah, Sure. <laughs> Let's I'm going to hair away from this conversation. <laughs> Let's hair a listen. This is the story of the hare who lost his spectacles. Omen said, like we said last week, like you mentioned last week, this is one of your favorite favorite little tidbits of tall Pretty much like on the top of your list, right? Of all all aspects of Tull. For me, it's one of the most memorable tastes of Tull. Bites of Anderson, if you will. Mm. Inches of Ian. That's out there. And it's, I think, you know, it's because it's so unique. I also, I have a soft spot for storytelling. It, it, it wouldn't be an inch of Ian. It would be a, a jot of Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> a handful of Hammond. There you go. A hand, a hand, handful of Hammond, Hammond. <laughs> but there's something just so. There's something so lovely about this, and I think it really is the combination of the extraordinary orchestral work that we mm-hmm. hear here, mm-hmm. which I assume was composed by Ian Anderson and arranged by Dee Palmer. Has to be has to be Dee's work. It's oh, it's so good. It's honestly so good. It's it's really and and 
you know, in terms of the evolution of Tull, this is one of the first moments where I think we see really the the potential for other musical forms. I mean, this is this is completely different from rock and roll. This is really yeah classical music, and it you know it it reminds me so much of of Peter and the Wolf. Hmm, interesting. Although it, the 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 instruments aren't quite as anthropomorphized as they are in in that. Sure. But there are moments where, you know, you do sort of have musical proto themes or or sounds at least which accompany at least the first arrival of the different animals. Mm-hmm. So there is that element to it. But I think for me it's the storytelling. It's it's Jeffrey Hammond Hammond's delight in telling this ridiculous nonsense of a story. That just hooks me. He's clearly playing a character, like a, a almost like a children's narrator. Yes, you know it. It it definitely it makes a little more sense and it puts it in in a little more perspective when you do watch the video with it. But <laughs> I but guess also so. then it makes less sense. Yeah. His his character alone makes more sense, I guess, because you see him there. He's standing with the microphone. He's narrating what's going on around him. Right. And participating in it in the video in kind of a mm-hmm. uh, a, a sideways way. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of fourth wally because he's narrating to the audience and he's interacting a little bit with those around him, but they're kind of they're kind of not really acknowledging him and they certainly don't break the fourth wall it's very deadpooly almost and then it's it's fun that we have the the two this is in the video the two ballerinas who kind of bridge the gap they yeah they right. seem to be a little bit the minions of the storyteller sometimes they are the environment itself when they perform the the river sometimes mm-hmm. they are just working as effects of 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 emotion or storytelling on the characters. Yeah. And sometimes they're directly interacting with the with the characters. I want to go back to you're saying that this is some you really like the orchestration here. This is actually some of my least favorite orchestration. What is I your freaking problem? It's weird. It just doesn't feel. It feels that it's it's overpowered by the story that's going on and the rest of everything that's happening. And it it doesn't quite. Up until this point, we've heard the orchestration and it's always been kind of background. It's never been the, the main the main through line of of that specific song that it takes place in. But it's sure. always melded really well. This, I don't feel, I don't know. I don't know. There's something, there, there's there's less beauty in this orchestration than there is in what we've seen before, I think. And I think that's why, why I'm, I'm less moved by it. And knowing the story of, of the, the history of, of what happened in the Chateau. Right. Leading up to this album and how it kind of bleeds over into... War Child, thinking about this, I can see it as like the kernel. I can see it as the nugget as to the strings and the orchestration that we see later on in War Child. And thinking about the War Child orchestration is just, that is the pinnacle for the orchestration for Tull for me. Sure. Plain and simple. That's when Dee is, is at her strongest. 
that is when when I I love that orchestration. That's what I got introduced to with Tull. So so going back this one step, it's yeah. like I get it. I see it as a stepping stone, but it's not. It doesn't quite do it for me. Well, first of all, I I think that your critique of it is is on point. You, you, but I, I think that what it's important that's to remember. That's the first time. That's the very first time you've ever agreed with me, or not necessarily agreed with me, but acknowledged that, that it wasn't just absurd. <laughs> I've been working with my therapist a lot. I know I pay her twice as much as you do. <laughs> I I think it's important to remember that this orchestration is fulfilling a fundamentally different role than any orchestration we have heard up to this point. Yes, yes. Whereas, absolutely. whereas normally what we hear is the orchestration, which is a a vehicle for the emotional content of the song. Mm-hmm. This is also, this is almost, it's almost working against the narration or, or, or in real counterpoint to the narration. It, it, mm. for me, when I, when I listened to this song, especially when I first listened to it, I always had a very, very clear mental image of it. Having, having mm. not seen the original film right i would always create a film in my head when listening to this sure and uh-huh. and for me that orchestration became the hills and meadows and and streams and bulrushes and things it sure. really creates the environment and then you have the narration cutting across that so that mm. so that you can drive the drive the story forward and I also think that it stands out for me in this album because it is, for me, the most memorable tune. Like when I think of this album, you know, when you think of different, when you think of Benefit, you immediately think of that that opening. <sighs> that, that part. Wow. That was... That was a very interesting interpretation of the actual music. <laughs> Let's hear the real thing in contrast and see how close I was. Yeah. Ooh. I, yeah. I, I think close. I know what you were talking about. I think the, I know. <laughs> literally the very first sound off the first track. Oh, from... The first track of Thick as a Brick, you're saying, or of, of this benefit. Part, this no, portion? Benefit. Oh, of Benefit. Ben- I didn't hear you say Benefit. I'm benefit. sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah, now I know what you're saying, and that's rough. But you know, when you when you think of benefit, you think of that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That, that bit. That's setting that as a ringtone. I'll make that available for when everyone. When you when you think of Aqualong, you think of. When you think of you know when when I think mm. of passion play, I don't think of there was a hush. Along the there was a rush along the Fulham Road. 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I think of mm. This is the story of the exactly. who lost his spectacles. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very true, actually. I'll this give for you me that. is iconic of this album. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. love it. And I, I think I guess my my criticism, not that I don't think it's really criticism, my dislike for it. How dare you it. criticize my How? renditions of all of those songs <laughs> that, that I, that I will. just that did is definitely perfectly. <laughs> that my 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 dislike for it is because it's not that gorgeous, beautiful instrumentation, that orchestration that I'm used to thus far and and after the fact. That's not to say that this isn't great. It's just not what I it's not what I look forward to when I think of the orchestration that we hear in Tull. That's well, all. you, Nick, have what is termed medically as a massive dehabilitating addiction to the the other D Palmer strings. And so It's true. It's true. You know, I think that having you listen to this orchestration is sort of like Sort of like giving a heroin addict a ham sandwich. Mm. Yeah. What am I going to do with this? This is useless to me. It may be what they need, but it's it's not what they want. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And I'm going to be honest. I'm not trying to get help. I'm I'm just <laughs> I'm still using. <laughs> you are still using it's those dark. strings. <laughs> so fun note: if you haven't noticed. In episodes leading up to this point, this is the the incidental music that we use anytime we read listener mail. That's right. Emails or or tweets or things like that. That's yeah. that's our incidental background music. Is this this dun 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 Oh, you want me to tell you what they are? Oh, no, no, no. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what you think. <laughs> I just, first first thoughts, I thought there were way more puns and wordplay in this than there actually is. Yeah. I thought it was laden. I thought it was rife. I thought it was lousy with puns. It's not. It's no. not actually not. No. I mean, I, saw I two. think my favorite is, a... <laughs> you can, Guru, you can. You can, Guru. Yeah, because two lines prior, they established Kangaroo as the Guru, just to pay off that line. Yeah. Oh, wow. She was the leader, the Guru. She had the answer. Her, you must go in search of the Optitia. But then she realized that her were completely helpless without his spectacles. And so, Kangaroo loudly proclaimed, I can't send her in search of anything. You kangaroo, you can, shouted you. And the other one was, Kangaroo was hopping mad. Kangaroo was upping mad. A kangaroo were upping mad at this sort of talk. Oh. And that's it. That's all I saw for puns. That makes sense. And they're both kangaroo related. Yeah. So obviously there is a connection to Winnie the Pooh. This is, you know, because we yes. have we have kangaroo, we have owl, we have the hare. Mm-hmm. And and re- let's remember Winnie the Pooh was bef- even before Disney was much more prevalent in the UK as as a character, as a children's story, as a character. Oh, certainly. 
Yeah. But you know, the other thing that this reminds me of is The Wind in the Willows. Oh, interesting. I didn't think of that, but now that you say it, yeah, absolutely. The the anthropomorphized animals. Yeah. With, each with like like a really kind of distilled character. Yeah. Living in a in an animal society where they have strong opinions and all kind of based on English archetypes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Nick. Yes. Why is this piece in here, you ask? I'm glad that you did. I have a an idea. Okay. And that idea is that, like Critique Oblique, this is a story about the ridiculousness of a lot of people who don't know anything about a subject discussing what's wrong with someone else. Someone who didn't ask for their help, no less. Exactly. And so I wonder if this is, you know, we have already seen Anderson Dante-like putting his detractors and those who critique him literally in a, in hell. Mm-hmm. I wonder if this is a sort of a lighter parable version of that where you have the hare who appears to have a problem. Okay. Right. And then you have everyone giving their opinion about what they should what hare should do about that. Right. I wonder if that if there is a similarity between Anderson just trying to do his fluty rock and roll and everyone else saying, there's too much flute. What's a concept album? Yeah. You should do this. You should do that. Why don't you record this sort of thing? We've talked before, Nick, about how Ian Anderson often feels like he's presenting a version of himself where he is kind of alone in a or removed from the world. And I think that whether it was intended or not, and of course it's important to remember that actually Jeffrey Hammond Hammond wrote this, but I still mm-hmm. think that there is a parallel. You know, we have the hare who is surrounded by other creatures who are discussing him vehemently, mm-hmm. and yet no one asks him, "Right, what are you trying to do with your music?" Yeah, I was. That was a point I was going to make. Is is if they had just spoken to him. He could have given them an answer that would have solved the last five minutes of song or the last seven articles of critiquing Jethro Tull, you know? Right, exactly. This It could be, this is the story of the hare who lost his spectacles. Hare, have you lost your spectacles? Nope. <laughs> I did, but I have another pair, Here's... so don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> All this time, it had been quite plain to her. That the others knew nothing about a spectacle. And as for all their tempting ideas, well, hair didn't care. He lost spectacles for his own affair. And after all, hair did have a spare. A pair. Yeah, it's that's exactly it. It's 
people who think they know better than than that that own person about his own welfare. Yeah. Yeah. This is the story of some animals who made a podcast about the hare who lost his spectacles. This is the story of some animals who made a podcast of the hare who lost his spectacles. This is the story of Ben Gerson and Ian Anderson and the feckless moms. <laughs> yeah. I I think that's I think that's that's pretty accurate. I think we also have to take into account mm. I read an article that that even when Ian is asked about this he basically says I don't really know I just think we needed a little levity in between the two parts of this album which I certainly agree with I, I get that I kind of understand that right I, I agree too but also let's remember because this has such an, a strong animal theme this was clearly going to be a part of the album that would have come out of the Chateau. Right. And can clearly be mixed together in with the other animal themes that we see in War Child. So I don't think it's just, oh, let's create something fun and lighthearted. I think there is something behind it. I think it's not just a throwaway. Even though it doesn't fit in perfectly to what we're seeing in the rest of Passion Play, there's, there's substance to this. That I, right. I think you are, I think you're hitting on with your theory of the critics and, and all of that. Right. It is almost a, a refugee from that other recording session, which has found a home mm-hmm. here on A Passion Play. And as is so often the case with refugees, I believe that it has enriched the country in which it has come to live. Because without the hair who lost his spectacles, A Passion Play would be just that much less listenable. I agree. I agree. And honestly, if they had decided, like with, with the other animal stuff, if they decided to put it into War Child, or I think it would be too jarring in War Child. And, right. and I I think it would be less potent in War Child than it would be here. I think there there's something to be said about it being so drastically different in 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 the sandwich of these two really dark and deep pieces. Yeah. Now, Nick, before we lose track of it entirely, let's touch on the outro to The Hare Who Lost His Spectacles, which is also the mm-hmm. the intro to the next section of the album, Forest Dance. Right. Forest Dance Part what 2. What a delight. I, I still... Forest Dance Part 2. Oh, my gosh. I still love it. I still love it. It's so gorgeous it's so flowy and airy and i know i said this in the exact same tone for for forest dance part one but gosh darn it i that's some of my that is it is direct juxtaposition of the orchestration from the hair who lost his spectacles into into forest dance the 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 musicality is just so stunning here it's so pretty yeah it really is and i think that this is perhaps what Stephen Holden was referring to as the the possible multi-track flute playing that is really mm. exceptional. I mean, and this is this is where we get to hear some of that that virtuosic musicianship that is that really is present. Yeah. And I, you know, as we said before, I do think that this album is a victim not so much of a bad concept and more of the fact that they 
jammed it out in two weeks. That's such a short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the equivalent of for us having bad audio and having to re-record having to re-record an episode that we already already recorded. So you're trying to re-repeat themes and re-repeat ideas and jokes even that once happened organically and now they were and and they're so good now you want to repeat them and and get them out there but you can't so there's there's always a degree of it's not as perfect as it could have been yeah and and the fact that they had switched themes so quickly as mm-hmm. well you know they've been working on this whole animal escapade with the at the chateau d'orine d'orine d'orville d'orville that now they have They've they've taken this totally other track and done done a Dante, a <laughs> pulled a Dante. The fact that it came out so well is is really quite extraordinary. It's that's an interesting point that you just inadvertently made. Is why why didn't they why didn't they just try to recreate the animal theme? You know. Well, maybe it's what you just said. Maybe that the the prospect of redoing all the stuff that they'd just been busting their heads about was was too much to, to deal with. They needed yeah. a clean break from that experience. If they played one more animal sound, they'd be reminded of, you know, having horse diarrhea in a in a cold bathroom <laughs> in France. And so they were like, you know what, we just have to do something else. And, you know, maybe this was an idea that had been kicking around for a while. Yeah, yeah, it, it was too triggering. Exactly. And Ian is, as we know, so prolific... How do we, you know, it's totally possible that he had these lyrics just ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. Or or it was just triggered. It was, well, Thick as a Brick did so well. Let's try for another, let's try for another concept album to kind of tide us over. Absolutely. And try and salvage that animal theme in the next album. And that's why we see so many pieces of the animal theme in, in War Child. And why War Child ultimately is such an exciting album. Yeah. Yeah, because it was it was what ha- at least half formed already, and they built upon that. Yeah, I like that idea. Next week, we get to move on to the the further down the, the the hellish rabbit hole 
that is a passion play. Mm-hmm. What do we have next week? That's right. So we are on part three or act three of a passion play. It is the next serious portion featuring Ronnie Pilgrim. It is the next nine and a half minutes. It is the business office of G. Adi and Son two days later. Ha ha ha. Why is Ronnie Pilgrim in a business office? I don't know. G. Adi. And who is G. Adi? Yeah. And son. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. All to be unpacked later. Until then, I am Omen Said. And I am Nick McGill. We are Feckless Momes. And this is Talk Tall to Me. So, so Omen, did you know? Did you know there was a working, a different working title for the hare who lost his spectacles? Oh yeah, actually, I have the alternative script right here, and and we're gonna read it for the first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These these lyrics were actually written by Clive Bunker, oddly enough. <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> this is the story of the lemming. Who misplaced his lollipop? One day, a lemming was eating handfuls and handfuls of ripe fruit when suddenly he realized he had no idea where his lollipop had gotten off to. Several thousand ants swarming by said, Perhaps we ate it when we were looking for sweets. A termite said, Well, I would not have eaten a lollipop because it's not made of wood, is it? Furthermore, a python came up and was about to swallow the lemming. I mean the lemur, when a goshawk landed on him and said, If you eat that lemur, you shall have a tummy ache. And furthermore, Doc Tultimy is a proud member of the Feckless Moms Audio Network. Ah! Ah!